Welcome to Telegeography Explains the Internet, the show that explores the business behind all of the ways humans stay connected around the world. I'm your host, Greg Bryan, and my guest today is Aaron Chan, founder and managing partner at Recurve Capital. Usually on the show, we have people working in the telecom industry or those who manage telecoms for large enterprises. But today we're going to have something of an outside perspective. Aaron is an investor in the technology, media, and telecom space, or TMT, as they say in financial circles. And he discusses with me how investors view the telecom industry and how he classifies the publicly traded telecom companies that are out there on the market. While we focus much at telegeography on the economic geography of networks, I personally don't often consider how those factors might lead to stock growth, dividends, price-to-earning ratios, and, and those kinds of financial considerations. So it was really fascinating for me to hear Aaron provide his view of the long-term profitability of network operators and what he looks for in making investment decisions in the telecom space. We also talk about the future of the industry and what might lead to some competitive advantage for some transport data companies and how long that might last. So I really feel like I learned a lot hearing Aaron's perspective of the industry, and I hope you will too. Okay, welcome to the show, Aaron. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. No, it's my pleasure. You know, you're a little bit different of a guest, which keeps the show fun and interesting for me and for the listeners. Um, so why don't you start out with maybe a, a background on yourself and, and how you ended up uh, founding Recurve Capital? Sure. So I've been in uh, professionally investing in the public markets for about 20 years, a little under 20 years. I started my career in 2004. Uh, I've been at a few different investment firms over that time. And in 2021, Early 2021, I decided to start my own firm, Recurve Capital, uh, which is an investment advisor. Um, mm -hmm. I, I've spent the majority of my career investing in technology, media, telecom, and consumer-facing companies. Uh, I started early in my career looking at a lot of different telecom companies, which is why we're talking, I think. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah, there's only one T in the TMT that I really talk about a lot. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was just going to say that, um, you know, the, the, the landscape landscape has evolved a lot. Um, and I've looked at the traditional carriers, emerging market wireless, wireline, cable, uh, you know, enterprise. I've looked at all of it over the years. And these days, there's not a lot to look at. There's, there's not that many companies left anymore. Uh, yeah, that, that's so one thing we'll get to for sure. Yeah. 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 But but it's it's so I spend a minority of my time on it today, but it's still something mm -hmm. that I pay close attention to. Well, yeah, and you know I've been I've been looking for a guest on on this topic actually, and and one of the reasons that when we spoke earlier that I thought you would be a really good match for the show is is that variety of areas within telecom, uh, so that you've had some experience like on just like the the mobile tower side and maybe enterprise services and all that sort of thing that, that while sometimes there's a lot of vertical integration for the really big ones, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of going on, uh, I think, investment wise in all those different areas. So yeah, I, I'm looking forward to learning about that side that that I only I get from my occasional interactions with with customers who want some data from me related to this, right? So yeah, yeah sure, yeah. 
Excellent. So I thought, uh, Aaron, we might just start out with kind of an, a broad introduction to telecom investing. So most of the people, of course, who listen to the show are, are directly in the business or maybe managing large networks and maybe don't even think a lot about what the the capital side thinks about in this industry. So um, maybe start out with just someone who's investing in telecom, someone who's focused on this like you. What are you looking for out there? What um, and, and you alluded to this, that this has changed over time, but what over time has been interesting about the telecom sector? Yeah, sure. And before we get started, I just want to uh, mention that there are disclaimers uh, in the show notes. And I want to just reiterate that what I say is my opinions and nothing constitutes investment advice. Yes. <laughs> so I just want to get that yeah. out of the way. Um, so these are my own opinions. Um, so yeah, we'll have we'll have notes. We'll have a whole uh, officially <laughs> legally yeah. sanctioned disclaimer in the show right. notes. But right. do not take this as investment advice, and uh, it's its own risk. And you guys have heard that before, right? <laughs> yeah. Of course, of course. Yeah. So I would say when it comes to telecom investing, I'd say there's two main camps that I think mm-hmm. about. I think there's the the dividend yield income oriented part of the market okay. where it's defensive revenue streams, recurring revenue, steady cash flows, steady earnings, and a reasonable payout ratio such that you buy, you know, whatever it is, AT&T or Verizon or one of these more steady, lower growth, lower volatility businesses, you can depend on that dividend coming through to you as Mm -hmm. an income investor. Um, Then there's the other camp, which is what I would call the free cash flow per share camp. And that's that's where the, there may not be a dividend payout. Mm-hmm. It may just all keep rolling through the organization. Maybe they have a shareholder return program via buybacks, but not through dividends. And the the formula there, I would I, I think the quintessential example of that would be what like you know the cable sector has done over time, whether it's Comcast or Charter, where they've had you know share gaining revenue growth. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe it's mid to high single digit, maybe it's in the old days, maybe it's low, low double digit. They have a high fixed cost base, low variable cost base that uh, makes earnings grow faster than revenues. And then they use the balance sheet um, and the debt capacity of the business to repurchase stock and drive the per share values higher over time. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I would, so I'd segregate the world primarily, the telecom world into those two camps. Um, Increasingly, I think that, you know, the second camp is is going to slowly merge into the first camp Mm. because there's Mm -hmm. just not that much growth left anymore. And so as growth decelerates, I think the income uh, attributes maybe start mattering a lot more to those free cash flow per share stories that that used to be more popular. Okay, so in that first group, um, I think in, in the U.S., we would mainly call those like ILEX, maybe PTTs in, in other parts of the world. Is is that, from an investing standpoint, kind of like the classic old utility, right? It's like very low risk, minor reward maybe, but you're going for that regular sort of dividend income kind of thing. Is Is that where mostly the sort of battle of telecom being a utility commodification. The reason I want to ask the question this way is that I know that if I had someone from a telecom company in the room right now, they would be doing 
absolutely everything in their power to tell me that they are absolutely not a commodity. Right? So <laughs> it's, 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 from the investor standpoint, I'm not going to get involved in, in that fight. But from the investor standpoint, uh, is that right that they are kind of utility-like sort of a, a commodity-like um, a, a resource? So I think the quicker any telecom company acknowledges that they are just a, a pipe, um, mm-hmm. And now the end markets are different, and the difficulty of those end, those end markets is, can be highly variable. So, a wireless pipe is very different from a wireline pipe. It's very different from a retail pipe, right? Like mm-hmm. if you're there's all these different players, and the, the the dynamics change depending on how competitive your end market is. But I think the days of application specific networks are. I mean, we've seen what has happened to long distance voice and voice and mm-hmm. video and all of these application specific networks have been commoditized by the internet. And that is the ultimate, you know, the, the internet has forced all of these networks to become dumb pipes. And so right. what, what differentiates one dumb pipe from another is cost. And that's why you've had price deflation and commoditization of everything, all services, all products that have run up across these networks. Mm-hmm. And, it's it's made for a very difficult recipe for the equity investor because right. you've had lots of capital deployed into these businesses, tons of debt taken on to deploy large networks that you know supported a revenue base that was much larger in the past where there was a much higher price per megabit or gigabit of capacity mm-hmm. utilized on the network. And now those retail prices and consumer prices per unit have deflated at such rapid on such a rapid cost curve or price curve that you're you're using like you know debt to support a declining business it's ended up being value destructive to the equity investor so maybe now you guys get much more in the technical weeds than i do sure but so maybe it's not true that all networks are commoditized but from my view i feel like the answer is the answer is obvious the end point is all fiber networks all ip and Mm -hmm. You know whether the last mile is fiber or a very high throughput wireless drop into the home or you know coax cable to the home the core of the network that matters is fiber and right. if you don't have that i don't know you're just kind of uh you're playing against time competing against mm-hmm. time and you will be disrupted eventually. It's just a matter right. of time. So as an equity investor, you know, you care about the discounted, but some of the discounted cash flows over the life of an enterprise. And, you know, if, if you think about how valuation works, you have, you know, kind of the, 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 the years zero to 10 are more visible. Years 11 and beyond are, you know, you're kind of guessing at what the terminal value of the business will look like. If you're dealing with cash flow streams that are based on non-fiber, non-end state technology, I don't know how you underwrite to that very accurately as an equity investor. You have to put a massive discount on the valuation of those cash flows. So you may be able to run out a DSL network for the next seven years or 10 years, but you know you're not going to have it in 30 years. So how do you value that revenue stream or that cash flow stream from a, a... a commodity layer that's going to be disintermediated by better technology over time. It's a very difficult thing to assess. And 
you know, the, again, the internet and the application layer has disrupted the service layer to a massive degree, um, yes. the infrastructure layer to, to a yes. massive degree. Amazon, Google, Instagram, Facebook, all of these applications, that's where all the value has accrued. Even though these networks, which provide like mission critical utility function for the entire global economy, mm-hmm. none of the economic rent has accrued to them, even as you've had massive like volume explosions in businesses. So, Except for where they're vertically integrated with those over the top services or whatever, right? So, you know. Do we have a, a great example of a network company <laughs> that has a winning application? Uh, not, not, not in, <laughs> not in commute, not in like UCAS, for example. I wouldn't think. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So they, and there were attempts at that, certainly. Um, so with you may remember these like kind of meet me rooms, right? Where like yeah. um, trying to create uh, sort of before Skype and 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 Zoom uh, a long, long before Zoom, <laughs> before Skype even came along to sort of. Uh, um, go over the top. And yeah, certainly. I mean, yeah, you know, for, from my perspective, as more kind of the economic geography of, of it, um, the thing that I can really align with what you're saying is that prices are always going down <laughs> and almost very predictably because they're following uh, a kind of a Moore's law of the, the transmission, right? Then and, and demand is always going up, right? So although there's some limit to that eventually if we're we're all doing video calls and watching sure. Netflix and gaming there's not it's not going to be at a whole lot more than that but you know the leave it to the content providers to come up with many more right. with hungry things if, that's, if that's the metaverse is a thing then then right. maybe AR VR Absolutely. puts another yeah. multiplier on all future yeah per minute growth uh, yeah exactly but per minute. so for, you know for 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 almost 20 years I, i've certainly heard of folks providing transport or, or wholesale IP transit, that kind of thing, saying like, uh, these price decreases, I, I, I can't stay in business. Demand grows really fast and has kept some of them afloat. But I take it that's everything you're talking about is why we've seen, frankly, a lot of consolidation in, in that end of, of the world as well, right? So, Yeah. And I think, you know, I was reading a, a white paper by Cisco, I think from like the early 2000s last mm-hmm. week, and it was about DWBM. And there was a paragraph that was just so, like, mind-blowing. And the paragraph said something to the extent of DWDM has potentially infinite capacity. Mm-hmm. It, it, mm-hmm. it introduces potentially infinite capacity on fiber. Right. And that's the problem, right? There's just an oversupply. And there's right. a technology there's technology that enables more wavelengths, more capacity per wavelength. And you can just keep doing this over and over and over again. And if you have in- infinite capacity, what do prices do? <laughs> you know, like maybe it's not all unlocked in day one, but as it's unlocked over time, you're just going to have price deflation. And by the way, that's good for society because look at all sure. the things that we've been able to achieve yeah. right. technologically because of the very cheap network layer that we have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I think m- maybe this would be my my question for you in terms of, and again, we're not looking at investment strategies or whatever, but just from a kind of like, almost like a uh, macro view of, of this industry that they're still out there. Uh, AT&T, Verizon's, I, you know, ILEX of the world, PTTs are, are going to be there. There's, there's still a solid business. It's just not one that perhaps the investment community is interested in because it's, a known 
uh, commodity, if you will, right? That that is is a is a perhaps a safe bet for certain investing strategies, but that it's not going to it's not going to have some kind of like unexpected movements or whatever. It's it's uh, I, and and this would be my question for you because I truly don't really keep an eye on this, but I assume that their stock prices, their their PE don't change a lot over time. The dividends probably don't change a lot uh, year on year. Is that, is that is that why it might not be interesting to the investment community? Well, the the stock prices can move around with the change in the risk-free rates and the treasury mm-hmm. yields and things like mm-hmm. that. And so the dividends... Right, due to macro things right, more so right. than, than, than the company itself, right? And so. the earnings have been, you know, fairly stable, but still, um, you know, you had, I think, low single-digit revenue increases last year mm-hmm. in at and Verizon. Uh, I think Verizon is probably expected to grow 0 to 1% for the next few years, per year, mm-hmm. well below inflation, right? So you're right. you're giving up real pricing every year in this business. Um, right. I, I think the challenge is that you still have, at least in, in the enterprise side, you still have legacy revenue streams that are way over earnings relative to what mm-hmm. the over-the-top application or the newest application would be charging on a, on sure. a per-unit basis. So Enterprises that haven't given up their voice service and right, TDM exactly. and stuff like and that. And like, why would you? Because you're over-earning and like, should you turn off the over-earning cash flows today just so you can bottom out faster? Mm-hmm. No, you probably shouldn't. Uh, you should probably take as many of those cash flows as the market will give you. But from an investor's perspective, from my perspective, at least, I'm not really interested unless either that security is priced so incredibly cheaply that I can I can stomach all the losses and it's embedded in the valuation for me. Right. Or uh, until those revenues have started to bottom out and the legacy stuff that's over earning is cleaned out of the, the revenue base and they can start growing again somehow. Um, the problem is you don't know where the valley bottoms in the revenues. And until until you have visibility into that, the the valuation probably just compresses forever. Essentially, uh, it, it, there's some limits to how cheap stocks can get, especially these large cap stocks that are stable and have big, you mm-hmm. know, they have big investors that care about the dividend and the yield. I was going to so say because it could be so attractive, high. right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but there's a reason why Verizon trades at like a seven percent dividend. Like mm-hmm. that's a stable business. Now, risk-free rates are much higher, but that's a very high dividend yield for a company like that that has shown a lot of stability over its life. Um, right. That tells me, usually what you see is like, you know, I think Lumen had a, like a double-digit dividend yield, and, and then they that's the market basically saying, we know you have to cut the dividend. Um, that's why the yield is allowed to creep that high. Mm-hmm. And then they do cut the dividend, right? And so the market right. is right, and the stock collapses because now all the yield investors are gone. So, right. uh, you know, it's there's a balance between the balance sheet health of these companies and the revenue trends of the of the businesses that they have to. It's a delicate balance. It's it's just there's not inherently there's just not enough growth to make it interesting for me because. I don't care about clipping a seven percent coupon. That's not what I try to do every <laughs> sure. day. Yeah, that's yeah. that. That's just my style, and what I, mm-hmm. you know, what I'm attracted to or not is very different from what other people can be attracted to or not in the market. Mm-hmm. But um, I look to I look for things that have more competitive differentiation that 
that kind of already believe in the end state and have oriented their businesses around mm. the end state of the industry mm-hmm. that I that I see at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's just not that many of those companies out there. There's maybe one or two. Right. Well, that no, that's that's really interesting. I think so. So you know, leave aside that. Okay, well, if I'm I'm in a you know stage of life where I want my investments to be you know dividend producing, really secure, or whatever. That 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 is one thing, and this might be you know interesting for that. But within and and by I want to be specific because we we could go really broad with this and include things like the hyperscalers themselves or SD-WAN providers and all that, but sticking to like transport layer facilities-based kind of telecom, that sort of thing. So you mentioned there's one or two that have a different philosophy. Um, I don't know if you can, but if you can give us an example of of that uh, specifically or just generally to sort of show us what that might look like. Yeah, I I think the the one company that I have found that um, kind of exemplifies what I'm talking about is Cogent Communications. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a company that was created with the idea, with the uh, uh, built on the premise that the internet would win, and mm-hmm. it would mm-hmm. outcompete all the network specific service layers that were out there. Right. Um, it. I mean, Dave Schaefer started the company with one of the most audacious theses that I've seen, which is that he could build a global IP network on a, on a single pair of fibers and just mm-hmm. ride the DWDM cost curves forever. And this, this, this is in a market that had been massively oversupplied by physical fiber built by Global Crossing or Level 3 or right. PSI Net, whoever it was. And all of the most of those businesses have either gone bankrupt or been reconsolidated into What's Lumen. now Lumen, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? There's like or Zeo, I guess. Like yeah, big yeah. holidays, yeah. Lumen, Zeo. Yeah. Like you know, maybe AT&T and Verizon have some of them too, like yeah. Sprint. Um, but there's only one company whose revenues today are higher than they were 20 years ago, and that's mm-hmm. Cogent. Mm-hmm. And it's because they started small. They started believing in the commoditization of of the the IP or the the, the kind of long haul transport network. Right. Rather um, than trying to deny that that was the case yeah. and, and find ways to it also, can you give us a time frame for this roughly? Uh, because I, I think it might relate to people who were in the industry that, but that weren't concerned with investing certainly knew what Dave Schaefer and would, a lot of them thought it was uh, wild. Right? You know, so, yeah. so uh, what time frame uh, is, is he sort of having this realization and, and going through this process? So I'm going to, uh, my knowledge, uh, I don't know how, how accurate I'm going to be, but it's going to be. Yeah, sure. I mean, general, r- general. Plus or yeah. minus. I believe yeah. he started the company in 1999. Uh, okay, and he raised yeah. about, I think he, he raised $500 million of venture capital mm-hmm. with the intention to go build a global network that would eventually cost, I think, $2 billion in not just network costs, but also the operating losses to scale the business up. Mm-hmm. And then in the early 2000s, when the telecom, the wireline telecom and fiber ecosystem just blew up completely, right. Cogent right. was able to acquire a handful of companies. I think it was 13 or 14 companies that, mm-hmm. you know, including PSI and that and others that 
had built out physical infrastructure. I believe they say $14 billion of gross invested capital. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Cogent acquired for $50 million. I was going to say, because that, that, that was exactly the reason I asked that question, that if for, for my world, if I look at the price curves of what was maybe the currency of the realm then, like like an OC3, STEM1, you know, Sonnet, SDH kind of service. Yeah. Um, the period of like 2004 to, to 2007 or so, or maybe even shifted a little. Again, I, I don't have my dates perfect either in my mind, but that is an ext- it's a roller coaster right there. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's the, the fun part of the roller coaster right there. Now, things, <laughs> things, things keep falling, of course, after that right. year on year, but year on year for transport, we're looking at kegers of like, you know, 10, 15, 20%, depending on if you have new submarine cable or something. It was not. 10 to 15% in those years, <laughs> it right. was, you know, 50, 60 more. Right. So, so it was an auspicious time to be doing that. <laughs> right. Sorry. Go you know, it, it was just too much capacity was built out and mm-hmm. uh, everyone suffers when there's too much capacity. So right. what was a big business that was built on huge volume growth as the networks are being built out initially, uh, volume growth started to slow and and you could you had advances in technology and optical networking and routing where you got more capacity from the the strands of fiber you had in the ground already so mm-hmm. it was it was an explosion of the number of strands of fiber and the capacity that you could put through a, a single strand of fiber and mm-hmm. that was massively deflationary but it also you know the balance sheets the equity investors are the ones that lost right um mm-hmm. a lot of these companies went bankrupt a lot of them got Swallowed up by what's now Zeo or Lumen right. or Cogent um, mm-hmm. and others, and but that's part of the capital cycle, you know. That's yeah, that's, yeah. I mean, it's not like that's unique to this industry, right? Correct. So you know, yeah, yeah there yeah, was some unique know, fraud in this industry, I will say. Well, but, yeah, uh, <laughs> Bernie Evers, right, and all that. Yeah, sort of exactly. thing. <laughs> yes, yes, for sure. If and listeners, if you're not familiar with that story, Google it. It's it's fun, right? <laughs> but, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, you, we were saying before that I. I have fielded quite a few sort of like investor calls through uh, people are familiar with like GLG, that kind of thing over the years. And, and I don't get as many really at all as, as I used to, but they used to be a lot focused on, on level three century link lumen, right. Um, uh, was, do you think that's just because they were also sort of uh acquisitive during during this time period why, why would it why, why were investors focused on on those companies at that time other than for the obvious reasons that we already hit that, that it, they're they're not going to have questions or be you know uh, about something as as solid and known as as the big kind of ilex yeah <clears throat> excuse me there was a time when you know jeff story came into level three mm-hmm. and started executing a turnaround plan um and started you know rolling up that industry and also zeo was doing the same thing so there was a lot of consolidation that was happening in the wireline mm-hmm. network uh world the whole so thing. kind of as simple as that just like yeah. if they're going through this consolidation we need to see how that might impact the stock price and that sort of thing well you could imagine that if a if a sector or a part of the economy is too too competitive mm-hmm. there's too much overbuilding of each other and suddenly there's a wave of consolidation. Theoretically, that would be anti-competitive, right? And right, right, the, right. The, the severe price declines that the sector had seen may may slow down or maybe arrested. 
And that was the whole debate around T-Mobile acquiring Sprint, right? Mm-hmm. You're going from a four-player market to a three-player wireless market. You have basically same service level, same coverage for uh, you know this tech, this industry. And when you consolidate the market shares, in theory, it would become less competitive, right? And I mm-hmm. think to some degree that has happened. Um, mm-hmm. So if you if, on the wireline side, you probably got a lot more interest in it because investors were trying to figure out whether or not that would lead to better revenue growth on an organic right. basis right. because of the consolidation. Does it heal the market in such a way that it becomes much more investable? And have they cleaned up the, the legacy revenue streams to such a degree that you could the newer, grow, growthier revenue streams start out punching the declining revenue streams? And at some point, that probably happens. You know, right. I don't know from what level. Maybe they need to drop another 50%. I don't know. Yeah, but it's, it's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't cover like consumer mobile pricing or whatever, yeah. so I have, no, I have no opinion there. But but I can tell you in in the long haul transport, and maybe some of this has to do with the physical realities of those markets. So there there's a there is really a finite resource in spectrum, right? So only mm-hmm. so many companies can own the spectrum within a country and provide mobile service. That's not true for for long haul transport. There's like you said before, Cisco wasn't an it wasn't wrong. Maybe in some theoretical sense, there are limits. There's a Shannon limit sure, of, of course, you yeah. know. Um, but but you can you know it's 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 expensive, but you can put more fiber down too. And and terrestrially, it's not not subsea, but terrestrially, when you do bother digging a hole, they just dump reams of fiber into that hole, right? Um, so so we right. you know from my perspective, I haven't I haven't ever seen consolidation lead to an increase in prices. Uh, maybe without it, prices would have decreased more than they did. I can't, I can't run the Monte Carlo machine, right? But, uh, but yeah, um, yeah it, it certainly hasn't resulted in in stable or or increased prices in my experience ever. You know, so. you know, I think the the general problem that I have with the telecom industry is the prisoner's dilemma of spending capital, and mm-hmm. everyone can assess their single company capital allocation decisions around. Okay, if we make this decision, it's going to reduce our cost per unit by whatever percent. Or let's wireless is really easy. If we buy the spectrum and it's 5G spectrum and we can run all the latest technology on it, it'll increase our spectral efficiency from 4 bits per hertz to 70 bits per hertz. Isn't that amazing, right? Right. Uh, yes, in a vacuum, that would be amazing if no one else was, were doing it and you could mm-hmm. suddenly outcompete everyone else in the market by offering a better value, better price. Right. And better service levels, but the problem is when the entire industry deploys, you know, I think AT and T spent like around thirty-five billion dollars in the the C band auction, and Verizon spent more than that. I think it, above forty billion dollars. All for what? They don't get any new revenues. They're, they they might have like a five G unlimited like you know platinum kind of band of service or, or plan out there. That is a five dollar or ten dollar a month premium relative right. to the cheapest or the the more main, mainstream level of service, but it's not. It, they're never going to get that money back. You know, it's just mm-hmm. a very low yield defensive spend because everyone else is doing it. And right. I think you have to do it. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah you have to yeah. do it. And it reminds me of like, you know, Warren Buffett in one of his shareholder letters from the 1980s talked about the the textile business and how there was an investment opportunity to lower their costs. But, 
you know, he talks about it just destroying the economics of the entire industry because everyone put more mm-hmm. capital in so that they could lower their costs. But by everyone doing so, it set a new baseline and price, all the oh, all the gains yeah, yeah. went to the consumers, yeah. right? It, right? It doesn't go, it doesn't, the value is not accruing to those companies that are investing in the capital. And I think that's mm-hmm. been the challenge for the telecom sector. Now there've been like, you know, the, the pockets where it's been interesting as an investor have been these local monopolies or mm-hmm. local duopolies, whether it's, you know, the cable sector for, you know, the last several decades or, right the cell tower business where there's so much NIMBY protection that like you can't just sprout up a new cell tower anywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, And so a lot of the economic rent does accrue to companies like that. But uh, when it comes to these oversupplied wireline networks and even the wireless networks, there's just not a lot of value that will accrue to those network companies Mm -hmm. uh, because of the oversupply issue that they have. Right. Yeah. So that's a great point that, that, everything I've been talking about tends to be on the kind of backbone level, if you will, or like long haul transport yeah. is, is there, uh, as, as you alluded to just now, interesting opportunity to look at, um, and, and for, you know, for, for, for folks like from, from within the industry, we might say local access prices are, are, there's a lot more margin than there is for, for long haul in situations where you have some kind of geographic advantage yeah. for having gone through the, the, the trouble of digging trenches. Um, so, and, and I think you would probably call that economic rents just so that everybody listening is on the same page, right? Um, the extraction, correct me if I'm wrong, but of more value than, than one might've expected from that essentially is what you're saying. Right. So, um, yeah. Yeah, you know, yes. I, one one theme I've been digging on or try to research, um, although it's it's somewhat challenging to do uh, as a, as an outsider, is what the hyperscalers are doing in this business, uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because they are co- massive consumers of everything, and right. whether it's capa- raw capacity or physical diversity, route diversity, um, mm-hmm. they want it all, and. Right. The, you know, the old networks are built for very different applications. They're not necessarily built for what cloud computing footprints look like today right. or in 10 years from now when, you know, you run out how much of the work, how many of the workloads will be put in the cloud, the public cloud. And the infrastructure needs are tremendous and mm-hmm. the connectivity needs are also tremendous. And, you know, I, I've watched these presentations by Azure, by, by AWS talking about like the the fiber fabric that they have to assemble to right. enable like however many nines of reliability they promise to their customers. Right. And, you know, there's a lot, there's possibly a lot to do there. I've talked to some of the guys that, that buy these services within those companies and the, the, the appetite seems insatiable to me. Uh, the traditional players, you know, it, like we just talked about, all of the networks kind of reside in just a handful of companies now. And those companies are not heavily investing in new capacity. Uh, a lot of them are, seem, you probably know this better than me, but I hear, at least in the marketplace, that many are reluctant to sell dark fiber, which is what yes. these guys want. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the, the wavelengths and point-to-point solutions are, I think, a, seem to be a good and growing business. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a chance that because of the demands and the needs from the, the hyperscalers and others like that, uh, others running on hyperscale 
um, infrastructure that mm -hmm. some of these oversupplied networks could see new revenue streams, whether it's wavelengths or talk fiber or other, uh, that could start reversing that kind of perpetual mm -hmm. decline in the revenue streams if there's enough demand coming for, uh, it, it, probably on different dimensions of value, whether it's geographic diversity, if it's just like a raw pipe from like LA to San Francisco, um, right. you're probably not going to get any uh, yeah. excess value out of something like that. If mm -hmm. there's like, you know, five other providers that run the same data center JSON or route, but if you can bring some, some uniqueness, uh, mm -hmm. or add different dimensions of value, whether it's, you know, route diversity, uniqueness, resilience, super low latency or something. Yeah. Like yeah. That. yeah. A straighter, a straighter path. Like I was talking to one guy who said, we, we buy so much between LA and Phoenix, but if you could build me a straighter path and reduce my latency, I would buy it. <laughs> Even though we already have so much capacity running between those right. two, because number one, it would inherently be diverse. And number two, it would reduce the latency and that, that right. matters to me. So uh, I think there are definitely opportunities where some of these companies can add, think differently about the way they add value to the customer instead of just, you know, mm -hmm. uh, the traditional network business that they're used to. Yeah. And some of that, revenue streams. Um, see if you agree with this, but was a little bit, maybe some response on the provider side to the hyperscalers pushing them to do that. It's not, not lost on anybody in the industry that like uh, Google fiber, for example, was a, was a play to say like, Hey, we can build our own networks. Right. <laughs> and, and, you know, and then they certainly did uh, you know, all of the, the large content uh, providers slash hyperscalers um, invest in submarine cables, for example, and, and whatnot. Right. So um, they, they still, of course, buy massive amounts of capacity from the traditional providers, but uh they're out there um, with their their own sort of vertically integrated supply as well, right? So, well, you know, if you think about it from their perspective, the supplier base that you're dealing with is shrinking, it's consolidating, mm -hmm. and if you're talking about like a lumen, right? They've sold off a lot of their assets. Mm -hmm. They just cut their dividend. They don't look financially like that sound. And if you're mm -hmm. Microsoft or Amazon or Google or Meta, do you want to? build a business plan that relies on one or two companies to do what you hope they do. Mm -hmm. um, it gets really challenging. When I started my career, I think the first sector I ever looked at was the cell power industry. So mm -hmm. I, I apologize if I re refer back to wireless too much. No, <laughs> not at all. I think that's but, actually really interesting to bring in. Yeah. But, uh, but in, in wireless, like, you know, the, the carrier portfolio, tower portfolios got acquired by these tower companies and then you br they brought in the multi-tenancy model, right? And mm -hmm. because of the NIMBYism and because of the right. the, the sh relatively small radii that a cell tower, you know, fulfills um, in terms of dem mobility demand, there just wasn't a lot of, like, competition to oversupply that market. And mm -hmm. you got additional tenancy, you get, which, which brought like very high margin, additional revenues, incremental revenue streams. Um, I, the cell tower companies are a cost of service to the telecoms, right? So they sit senior to every right. other debt instrument in the capital structure. Mm -hmm. um, and because of that, their cost of capital was below that of their carrier partners, the carrier mm -hmm. customers. In this market, what I think is interesting is that 
you know, nobody borrows more cheaply than a hyperscalers because right. they're huge profitable businesses. Um, but the suppliers for this critical infrastructure borrow much more expensively and have less incentive to just go build new network right. and, and fulfill the needs of these customers. Uh, even if they see them, they may not be able to meet the return thresholds on the mm -hmm. first tenant because of their cost of capital. So right. I do think that, you know, the likes of the hyperscalers, whether it's Azure or AWS, GCP, I think they are being forced into building out some of their own infrastructure. Mm -hmm. and uh, doing it more vertically integrated. And they already are so vertically integrated. I, as, as I yes. went down this yes. research path, I learned a lot more about all the proprietary hardware, software, networking, everything that they uh, have to build in-house. Mm -hmm. um, or at AWS, it's you know Graviton chips and like their own custom silicon. Like they, they go all the way, you know, soup to nuts, proprietary mm -hmm. tech. Um, and it wouldn't surprise me if we see them a lot more active in the network infrastructure layer. Yeah, just that's because really of interesting. Need. And and especially when we talk about edge, for example. So so you know when you're when you're talking about cell towers, and and this is not my area of expertise, but I know enough to make me dangerous, maybe. But with with five G, that radius is even smaller, and there's penetration problems. So you have to have a network of towers rather than just you know. So on on uh, you know. Two through through four uh, G. If you're walking along, say, and and you turn your head, you're still in contact with that same tower. On five G, yeah. there has to be a tower on either side of your call because your head is enough in 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 some of the frequencies they use for five Gs to to stop the signal. Yeah. But from what I've read on on this uh, growth here is that where those high density of five G towers is available now is not where it's really necessary because um, for, certainly from a sort of fixed wireless standpoint, right, that that it's it's in very dense urban environments. It's it, it entirely after the sort of consumer mobile market, but for like the business yeah. 5G market where you would need that would be where you can't get wireline service very easily. And that's precisely where there's no in incentive to build it out, right? So, so I wonder right. if as edge becomes increasingly important to the hyperscalers that if I want to encourage people to do this edge computing, which often when you talk about like things like mech, like happening app at the tower, um, that the hyperscalers would, would kind of say like, well, we need more physical infrastructure to sell these edge services because that's the whole point of edge is it's close to the consumer, right? So, and, and, and if my options are like, you know, a, a rural ILEC, you know, or something like that, um, to, to be able to get close enough to, to my consumer, then that's not going to cut it. I, um, I, I have no idea, but I'm just, I'm just curious if you, if, if you see things going in directions like that. You know, I, it's hard to know. Um, there's, there's densification and fragmentation of everything. And, mm -hmm. you know, in the mobile networks, I think what you said is true if you're talking about the very high frequency spectrum. Right. Uh, so far, we've been building networks. You know, I remember seven years ago, there was a debate uh, over whether or not Sprint's two and a half gigahertz spectrum could be mobile spectrum. And now mm -hmm. everyone's building their networks at C-band, which is like the high threes, a high right. threes, low fours. Um, so the technology gets better. The, the networks necessarily get denser. It's you're also going to small cell networks where it's you know fiber fed, these small nodes that go up on like street poles and street lights and stuff like mm -hmm. that. Um, mm -hmm. 
I do wonder when it comes to mobile edge, people have been saying that you you could put a, a mini data center in the right. the sheds next to the, the cell towers. However, however, like those are like the big macro sites where you right. have you know that's kind of your coverage layer, not necessarily your capacity layer. And mm -hmm. so if you need it to be distributed throughout the network where you have especially where you have high capacity needs in like dense urban or whatever, you don't have a shed next to a street pole. You have to consolidate at some other pop like within that area, right? So I'm not sure how it all plays out. I have honestly I haven't spent much time thinking about it. It's not really mm -hmm. uh, something that's for me at least investable at this moment. So Right. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, interesting stuff to watch. All right, you know, I think um, where I might sort of go to to wrap things up here, and this has been really interesting, is just what do you find most interesting in the market right now? Um, you know, obviously you you you've been talking about that the whole time, right? But if you you had to sort of distill it into a, a, a takeaway, what what is um, interesting in the telecom and investment world presently? I think there's, you know, I my my strategy is much more of a rifle shot strategy. So mm -hmm. I try to pick, you know, a very select group of stocks um, and situations where I think I can assess, um, you know, how things may play out. And in the telecom market, like I said, in order for me to, my starting point has to be that the company, for me to want to buy a stock, I have to believe that the company believes in kind of the end state of the industry, which is mm -hmm. fiber everywhere and, you know, commodity. ubiquitous capacity for yeah, everyone. Yeah, ubiquitous exactly. capacity. And like, so what does that leave me with? It leaves me with any company that I believe is the low cost producer of capacity in its end market. Mm -hmm. um, and, and has a structural reason for kind of sustaining its cost advantage over time. Mm -hmm. That narrows the universe tremendously. Um, yeah. Yeah. There, you know, I'm going to refrain from talking about specific companies, but of course, I own I own, you know, one one company in wireline and one company in wireless, and mm. those are the only mm -hmm. ones that I think fulfill those conditions. Right. Um, there's a lot of moving parts, especially in consumer facing telco right. cable cable and telco. Uh, there's a lot of overbuilding. There's a lot of um, new networks being built and into rural and suburban and cable going to fiber, you know, copper going to, to fiber also. There's a lot of different moving parts. And I think it's really hard to, for me, it's easy to just eliminate as a, you know, I, I see some of these dynamics. I'm like, that's too hard for me. I don't know how to assess internal <laughs> yeah, sure. value. Um, yeah. I, I'd rather play in areas that are more predictable. Um, yeah. But for in, tel in the telecom market, because it's a commodity service at the end of the day, or a commodity pipe at the end of the day, if we believe, if, if my premise that like every network eventually goes to all fiber, all IP for the core of the network, and, and mm -hmm. uh, that there is unit price and cost deflation over time, then, you know, is there an interesting business attached to being the low cost producer of capacity in that end market? Sometimes you can be the low cost producer of capacity and it's still a crappy business. It's still a right. crappy stock. You know, it doesn't matter that you're mm -hmm. low cost because, you know, I dealt with this investing in European cable uh, years ago. You know, cable has an advantage over copper, but uh, a cost advantage, a speed advantage, 
but there was so much retail competition from the way right. European telcos were regulated with local loop unbundling. And I was going to say, more, yeah. Much more yeah. retail competition on two, basically a duopoly network situation, but much more retail competition. Mm-hmm. It didn't matter that cable was so much better as a network than much of the copper infrastructure out there. All of that just got competed away by the retail competition. So right. it doesn't, that's a starting condition for me. And then there's a lot of other things that I, I look for to reaffirm that it's actually going to be a good investment and a good business longer term. Um, mm-hmm. But that's why it makes, that's why the telecom sector is so difficult to invest in because there's just been a lot of competition and the reg- right. and it's also been heavily regulated. So mm-hmm. those are, that's a really bad combination for right. creation longer term. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So anyways, that's, I don't find a lot that's exciting in the telecom sector. It's very selective and it's very idiosyncratic, I would say. To the things mm-hmm. that I like. mm-hmm. And th- this may be totally out of your purview, but I think to close up, I'll ask this question. Do you, do you think it's more interesting maybe in, um, if we look further up the stack, right, uh, if you will, at, at the startups around things like, you know, uh, whether it's AIML for networking, you know, sort of SD-WAN, those kinds of things where it's it's still sitting on top of that commodity layer of dumb pipes, but they're doing networking differently with new software and that sort of thing. Um, do you, even if even if you haven't looked into that deeply and 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 whatnot, do you think that might be interesting to the investing world um, as a piece of telecom, or do you just end up considering that to really be software uh, IT kind of oriented rather than actually a part of the network itself? Well, I don't know. Um, you know, is is Amazon tech or is it consumer or is it? Yeah, uh, networking yeah. or, or whatever yeah. you know it's you, all these lines start to blur over time so i don't know mm-hmm. if that, the distinction matters that much um mm-hmm. my my gut reaction to your question is that co- technology is rarely a competitive a sustainable competitive advantage and mm-hmm. building because you can't keep business. it secret right so, yeah. So, yeah so so like it's really hard i have a particularly hard time uh, assessing software businesses because they mm-hmm. may look good for, and I've invested in software companies over time, but mm-hmm. they may look like they can grow for some period of time. But we're now in an era where software can write software. Um, maybe yeah. not unassisted, but mm-hmm. it can do a lot of the heavy lifting. So what With might a really have good cost, prompt. Yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, what, what might have cost, you know, $100 million of development, development uh, costs for a piece of software good like really really good application software uh, or infrastructure software maybe in mm-hmm. 10 years could cost a team of 10 people a million dollars right and they could do it on a variable basis with um you know usage-based cloud computing budget uh and deliver it globally at amazon or microsoft scale as needed um so it's to me those businesses are also really hard to assess because they the business models inherently look sticky just like telecom revenues mm-hmm. they are sticky the customer relationships are sticky but it feels like a a part of the market that if it's a good solution it'll be replicated a hundred times mm-hmm. <laughs> you know yeah. like yeah, I, i'm not sure yeah. i'm not sure like what differentiates one versus another and i'm definitely mm-hmm. not confident in my ability to 
choose which ones will will win over a 20-year horizon, right? Or or even a five-year horizon. It's just Mm -hmm. the growth. I've seen enough situations where the growth goes from, you know, exponential to, you know, GDP-like within a few years. And it's because there's new competition. A lot of investors, they like to find like the big trend and the hot trend. Like, oh, there's a lot of investment going to AI. Like, I'm just going to buy this trend. And I'm much more focused. My process, at least, is much more focused on what's the good business that falls out of this. Is there the trend may be one thing and there's like, you know, FOMO around Mm -hmm. wanting to be involved in that trend. Uh, But I always fall back on, is there a good business here that I can really kind of underwrite with within a reasonable band of like outcomes such Mm -hmm. that I can deploy capital um, in a way that is an attractive risk reward because a lot of these things are more speculative in nature and there's hot money and chasing them and uh, because the trend is so big. So it's, it's, it creates a lot of dangerous places in the market Mm -hmm. when there's like a a big trend like AI ML and, and like, point solutions that are growing extremely rapidly today. But in five years, maybe there's 20 new competitors and you have no mm-hmm. idea who's going to win. <laughs> and probably right. the answer yeah. is in the same way as the telecom market, the consumer wins. And right. the the services that that like turn that into an application layer on top of the infrastructure layer, uh, whether it's an Amazon or an Uber or Google, you know, those guys all got to ride on the network layer being commoditized over time right. and mm-hmm. build build their own moats that were separate from the, the network layer uh, and the infrastructure layer. The, I don't know how to, th- that's really hard to, to predict also, but um, I, I imagine as in most things in the business world, consumers end up winning most of the time. And it's very few businesses that end up winning longer term. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or, or they, they get, subsumed by the businesses that won for other reasons anyway right yeah 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 Yeah. interesting well this this i i could keep going on this um for a long time aaron so i i i uh hate to cut it off in this case because i find this really fascinating it's it's really interesting to me to see a totally different vision of the kinds of things that i'm looking at as an analyst for the industry within the industry all the time um, and, and and truly, I like I said, I, I truly don't even look at the stock prices for for most of these companies and whatnot. So um, I, I think it's it's fascinating to think about them in that that long term sense, rather than in the sense that I normally think about it, which is like, okay, well, what's what's going to happen with with network prices in Sao Paulo this year or whatever? You know what I mean? It's like very sort of granularity instead of pulling back. So it's been really interesting. To me, thank you very much uh, for, for all those insights. Yeah, can I can I ask you a question? Yeah, please, <laughs> absolutely. That is awesome. I hardly ever get that on the show, so I love it. Yeah. So, yeah. so from your perspective, are do you see? I mean, this is from my own education. Are do you mm-hmm. see pockets of the telecom market where there is less competitive intensity, or where there is real differentiated value being created? That that's that a that's a great about? question. Yeah, and so. One answer is is obvious but complicated, which is that you know geographically, right? Like if you own a portion of the network that no one else does, now this can be for a bunch of reasons, right? 
one obvious one being government regulation. So if I, you know, um, I, I would not mind owning network in Dubai that was officially licensed, right? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, because I, I, I know what kind of margins they're getting, right? You know, um, <laughs> uh, but but the the more sort of quotidian one would be um, that I, I have built out network where someone else hasn't and isn't likely to do so. Right. The problem with that as 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 a competitive advantage is that it's really expensive to do that. Right? You know what I mean? yeah. So digging trenches is really hard. And that's why only one provider has access to, to your factory that's in the middle of nowhere. Now, where things might get interesting is when you have things like Leo satellites, right? Um, uh, the Starlinks and the Kuipers of the world that have the potential. I don't know if it'll really happen or if it will be sufficient for this, but if, if all of a sudden you have access to sites that wireline is truly difficult, yeah, there, there's, I think, something interesting there because there are a lot of difficult places around the world. Most of them have the, the feature of those aren't what multinationals are interested in because they, yeah. but, but that is not always true, right? There, there's, there's plenty of situations where, where multinationals and or consumers are in those places, but they just don't have access to wireline service yet. So I, I think, I think that's, that's one place. I think the, you know, in terms of, of the network itself, right. Um, you're, I think you're right. The, the, the problem of, of that, like if, if a new technology comes along, it's from a it's from an OEM like outside the network operators, right? That can will sell it to whoever. So if I, if I come up with a better way of transmitting data across fiber, um, then I sell that to every carrier who will buy it, and it's just it's it's just constantly a race to the bottom. So of course they all know this, and I think I think one of the things they're trying to do is think about what are different business models for selling networks to people, and so in that vein of things. I, I also think the network as a service thing is a potentially really interesting place, right? So yeah. where where the, the difference isn't anything that we've been talking about, but it just in in how do I structure the the contract and how do I facilitate the lower transaction costs, essentially, right? Ma- making making um, a, a more fluid um, network purchase, right? Um, so yeah. and again, the whole, the whole industry knows this and they're going towards that. But I, I do see some, some really interesting potential in, in the whole network automation. Um, the, the, the reason I brought up AI is, is AI to, to do things like provision service immediately and without any humans being involved whatsoever. You know, th- there will be a time where that is a competitive advantage. If you're still the carrier who is getting trouble tickets and, and orders and all that sort of thing. And someone else has moved to an AI system that does that immediately through a portal. I could see that being pretty interesting, you know? Absolutely. For, for a period of time. Absolutely. Agree. Mm-hmm. Right. That's the thing. Yeah. It, 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 it will not uh, be able to be hidden from, from those other uh, providers. You know? So, yeah. yeah. I do wonder, you know, one of the questions I, I wrestle with on this hyperscaler topic is the hyperscalers are constrained by, access to cheap cheap and available power enough of it mm-hmm. by networking and you know I, I i mean it's basically those two things right you can you can stand up a data center in the middle of nowhere but you right. need to have access to the power and enough of it and you need to have access to to the connectivity um mm-hmm. and enough of it yeah. and i don't know you're we're running out of space in like ashburn right yeah, like ashburn sure. is mm-hmm. completely packed with data centers 
mm-hmm. we're running out of space in Silicon Valley. Like these these historically like uh, big hubs of connectivity and data center capacity are running out of space, and I, I think maybe also running out of power to some degree. I don't, I'm not yeah, really. They, I mean, yeah, to that. yeah, 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 absolutely. But you know, I I know that Amazon and I think maybe Microsoft also is like building out these big facilities and campuses, data center campuses, in like rural or not Oregon, um, like 150 miles east of Portland on the mm-hmm. on the mm-hmm. river. And right. that's a place that has a tiny population, I think of like under 20,000 people, but yeah. it's probably becoming mission critical infrastructure for that the regional economy, even if they don't mm-hmm. know it, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if the, I, I do wonder if there's something there to, to be an arms mm-hmm. dealer in that part of the market and just like follow them wherever they go and be not just a single provider, but is there a cell tower? What I'm wondering is, is there a cell tower model in there somewhere mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. Amazon doesn't want to build it themselves just for their own. They're, they're, maybe they're happy to and willing to, but if XYZ company could build it and both and Amazon and Microsoft and Google and Oracle right. and Meta all put a new data center campus in this new look in all these new locations because they have plentiful land that's cheap and cheap access to renewable energy or whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. Is that this is greenfield that could be like a multi-tenancy model that might be a good business. I'm kind of wondering about that. I'm not sure, but I do wonder if if that's like a potential new, better revenue stream for Mm -hmm. the next generation of networks that's going to be required to support all this off-premise computing. Yeah, no, I think that's interesting too. I and I think there there is a small potential. Again, this this is complicated because it gets down to very traditional things, not technological at all, like rights of way and yeah. and and the shortest path between two points, and and then the technical side of like, are there efficiencies to be gained in terms of having fewer routers every time you hit a hop that increases your latency a little bit right you know right so so you know i i think there is potential for, for something interesting there um where if the data centers are chasing cheap land and cheap power which is by far more concern cost wise for them than fiber yeah. right? right then then the fiber providers who can make that work for them in terms of latency um i think if, if, if that is possible, that's the thing, you know what I mean? Um, I, I, to the extent that that is possible, I think that could be really interesting for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But as a, as a, as an investor, how, how would you even play that? Uh, you know, that's the best yeah. part of the challenge, right? There's just mm-hmm. not that if let's say all that interesting stuff is happening within Lumen, but you have to take all the legacy stuff with it. It's really mm-hmm. challenging. Um, right. Especially right. because exactly. Lumen historically has a business that from the investors, at least from my perspective, I shouldn't speak for all investors, it is a gigantic black box of revenues. And mm-hmm. it's really hard to pull out what the underlying products and services are, what the yeah, for are sure. within them, mm-hmm. and uh, what's happening under the surface. So Yeah, I mean, uh, if, if you look at, at your, you know, whatever, 10K report, it's it, it, it's hard even to just extract what of this is going to the enterprise sector, what is going, right. let alone 
what does it matter if they're extracting some extra value on these particular right, yeah. situations, right? You know, at the end of the day, investors yeah. want to want to see it in a very like easy, simple, consumable way, which is that mm-hmm. top line revenues are stabilizing or growing, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and that the margins are not de- deteriorating anymore. So mm-hmm. um, you can bring all the complexity you want with the storytelling and the particulars, mm-hmm. but you're not going to get benefit as a uh, you're not going to see the stock benefit until it's pretty clear what's happening under the surface, uh, right? Based on what's reported in the, the high-level financials. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, excellent. Well, the, this was really truly interesting and delight. Thanks so much for joining me. Um, if if folks want to find you, keep up with what you're doing at Recurve. Is is there a way to do that? I'd say the best way is to reach out on LinkedIn. Sure. Uh, I'm on All LinkedIn. Right. Um, mm-hmm. That's probably yeah, absolutely. I've, I I always joke on the show. I've I've literally like n- never had a, a Twitter account, so LinkedIn will do for now. All right. So, yeah. Excellent. All right. Well, thanks so much, Aaron. It was great talking with you. Thanks for listening. Telegeography explains the internet comes from the experts here at Telegeography. It's edited and produced by Jane Miller, and it's hosted by me, Greg Bryant. And I also wrote that theme song you're listening to right now. To learn more about our data, jump over to telegeography.com and we'll see you on the internet.